0: Good morning. My name is John Harris, and um, I am really privileged to serve as an elder at this church, as well as to be married to my wonderful wife, Debbie, and also the proud father of three kids and six grandchildren. Anybody got more grandchildren than that? (laughs) One of them's even uh, running the slides here, so I'm glad I gave him a Christmas present, our bottom one. So have you ever embarrassed yourself with such intensity that you still get a hot sweat every time you think about it? (laughs) Even years later, I'd be willing to guess that you cannot beat my foot-in-the-mouth story. (laughs) It's a foot-in-the-mouth so deep that it went down to my knees and left shoe polish on my lips. And I am not kidding. So one morning, I got up to go to work like any other typical morning, and somewhere in between breakfast and uh, the toothbrush, the phone rang. So how often have you ever gotten a call where the person on the other end says that he's from the prime minister's office? Well, my heart either stopped or raced, I can't rem- remember which, and and thoughts were going through my mind like, uh, oh, man, well, if this is something good, okay, I'll take it. If it's something bad, oh, I was misquoted. Well, I was relieved to hear that it was good, and a couple of months later, Debbie and I were flying to Ottawa to collect an award that included being able to spend a big chunk of time with the prime minister in his office up in Parliament Hill, as well as uh, the greater part of an evening and a meal at 24 Sussex. So that sounds pretty good, right? No. So I'm standing in the parliament building, and we walk down the hall to the PM's office, and, uh, we're, and we're passing these guards, and believe me, they did not crack a smile, they did not look amused, and little things coming out of their ears and you know, talking like that. Come up to this big door, our, our guide knocks on it, I hear a voice that says, come in, the door opens, the prime minister sticks out his hand to me, I stick out his hand to him, and he welcomes me, and I completely froze. <laughs> and I'm not kidding, awkward, awkward silence. Something in my throat dried up, and I could not form a word. Oh, you've, you've heard that saying that uh, everything that goes into uh, my mouth makes me fat, and everything that comes out of my mouth embarrasses me. Well, in this case, Nothing came out of my mouth and I was, I was embarrassed. I was having a Zachariah moment. I was struck dumb. Well, the PM chuckled and made me feel at ease and our, my speech gradually returned and we had a good time. Well, in our passage this morning, we're gonna follow the story of a young woman who met someone with much more authority than any world leader, and instead of responding with a tied tongue, this remarkable young lady engages in a discussion with a being who is so exalted that, as he tells Zachariah a few verses earlier, that he stands in the very presence of God himself. We're gonna follow this incredible conversation. One that many of you have heard for years and I'm hoping that like scripture so often hits me even though you've read it a 100 times, the Holy Spirit just moves and something new happens. And when we're finished, my prayer is that we will answer three questions. And here they are. Number one, who does God favor? Number two, who is this child And number three, how can Mary, as a virgin, conceive a baby? Let's pray. Father, as our wonderful worship group has sung with us, and we have sung, come, O Lord Jesus, and set our people free through your word. Lord, come and open our hearts and speak to us through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So who does God favor? Well, let's start in verse twenty six. Sets the stage with a timeline. In the sixth month. Well, of course, what's the sixth month? It's the sixth month of what is it? I don't mind if you call stuff out, do you? <laughs> don't worry, we're not going to go carry's <laughs> <laughs> who is who, what who who was it? Yes, right, the pregnancy of Elizabeth, the other miraculous pregnancy in this chapter. In the first part of this chapter, we have an elderly couple that's way past childbearing age who, as you remember, are now expecting a son called, that we know as John the Baptist, right? So the same angel, Gabriel, who had broken this joyous news to the elderly priest, Zechariah, now is sent by God, not in the hub of the center of activity of Jerusalem, but into the boonies off the beaten track into a region called Galilee of a small town called Nazareth. And he is sent to a virgin who we are told is betrothed to Joseph. Now, put yourself in Mary's shoes. She's almost certainly a young girl, probably between 12 and 15 years of age. They got married uh, uh, right after puberty because of the short short life expectancy. And she's going about her daily routine. If you were living back then, probably 90% of your day would be involved in preparing food, uh, taking care of your clothes, and, and sleeping. Life generally was brutal and it was generally short. And there, suddenly, in the ceaseless boring cycle of life, there is an angel that is standing before you. And this is not just any ordinary angel. Gabriel. Gabriel appears three times in scripture and his God-given role is that of an interpreter, of a communicator. His purpose is to communicate important, epical things that God wants his recipients and his people to know. And each of the three individuals that he appears to experiences something like a traumatic reaction. We are told that when he appeared to Daniel, Daniel was so frightened that he fell on his face and he was followed by him being sick for days and overcome and appalled by the things that Gabriel showed him. Fast forward five centuries. In our passage this morning, God has been silent with his direct revelation of scripture for many centuries and he peers to Zechariah, right beside the altar uh, altar of incense in the temple, and we are told that when Gabriel appeared, Zechariah was troubled, and fear fell upon him. And now, a few months later, that same awesome heavenly being, messenger of God, is standing before Mary. Even that would be inconceivable enough, but in verse 29, we are told that Mary is troubled. But notice this, unlike Zachariah, it's not the appearance of the angel that distresses her, it's rather the greeting, the content of the greeting that Gabriel gave her that distressed her and unhinged her. He said, imagine this, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Zachariah got no greeting, but here Mary is told, this girl is told, that she is favored and that the Lord is with her. Now, the fact that this troubled her probably tells us something about her character. It probably shows her humility. How could anyone, let alone the Most High, ever say this about me? After the angel sees that she's troubled, he repeats the greeting and comforts her by saying, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. In the original language, the word used here, favor, is almost the same as that that is translated by the word grace. Grace, unmerited favor. Grace is, is like a gift. It's something that you get that you don't receive. It's just because of the graciousness of the giver. And so Gabriel is saying that Mary is highly favored because God is pouring out his grace on her. Well, let's switch from Mary Mary to ourselves for a moment. Do you ever feel in your heart of hearts like somehow that you have missed out on the grace of God being poured out in your life? At this particular time in our culture, your social status, your worth in the eyes of society will be largely determined by some combination of your wealth Uh, your brains, your appearance, your athletic ability, and having the right connections, the right friends. But those were not the things that were important to the God of heaven and earth when choosing the person through which he was going to break into the world and give birth to Jesus. Mary is at the bottom of the social hierarchy. She's from a place that the snooty upper classes in Jerusalem, rode off as inhabited by country bumpkins. They would sneer, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Anybody here from uh, Saskatchewan? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) okay, yeah. I I would say, in in our my my wife is, and I've spent some time there, probably I would say the only real tension we have is me putting up with her cheering for that, what's the name of that football team? Uh, but if, if this was taking place in Saskatchewan, okay, Nazareth, Nazareth would be three telephone poles past Gopher Gulch. I mean, if you, were, if you were filming Corner Gas, you couldn't do it there because it wouldn't be big enough to have a gas station. Impossible. So she comes from an inferior place. She's an inferior gender. Women definitely were on the bottom end of the social hierarchy. She not only is an inferior gender, she's an inferior ethnicity. She's a reviled Jew that's been colonized by the power, the boots of the Roman overlords. She's an inferior age, very young. Inferior wealth. Incredibly poor, we know this because when her family a few chapters later goes to the temple to give an offering, she uses, they use the, offer pigeons, which is what the poorest of the poor offered. She was either as poor as a church mouse or as poor as Job's turkey, you take your pick. And on top of all of those inferiorities in the eyes of the world, she's about to use, lose what little dignity is left by becoming an unwed mother. And you can be sure that all the gossips in town will be doing the math as they watch her midriff swell. And yet, all that inferiority is washed away when not once but twice Gabriel tells her that she has been favored by God and that the Lord is with her. Did God make a mistake by choosing someone of such low account? No. You know that is often the way that God works. He often uses insignificant things to do great things. And I love the way that the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme in 1 Corinthians 1 26. Listen to it. For consider your calling, brothers. <clears throat> Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. When I read this a couple days ago, I'm just the last uh, statement really, really uh, struck me. God chose what is low and despised in the world, follow this, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Let's uh, leave Nazareth and go a few thousand kilometers to the west, Rome. Imagine the most powerful man in the world, Emperor Augustus, strolling through his palace. Any of you who visited Rome, you can still go through some of the ruins of his palaces. And it was prime real estate. It was sitting right over, with large windows, right over the amazing Circus Maximus. The Circus Maximus was one of the largest stadiums in history. It held about 150,000 people, and they watched the great sporting events, the uh, chariot races, etc. Can you imagine him? ever thinking that some nameless peasant girl in some city that he's never heard of is going to have a tiny seed implanted in her womb, the things that are not, that one day in a few centuries will bring to nothing all of the splendor and the power of the Roman Empire. In fact, those things that are not are going to end up causing churches that are gonna sprout up all over the ruins of Augustus's decaying monuments. It's true that God favors the use of small, kid, small things. A kid's five loaves and two fishes can feed thousands A tiny mustard seed can grow into a giant tree that provides comfort for many. 300 Israelites under the fearful Gideon can rout a vast Midianite army. The gift of two pennies from a widow can be worth more than the bags of gold from the proud. A simple decayed rod of Moses can be held up over the Red Sea and be used to save the nation Israel and conquer Pharaoh and he can even use a donkey to speak, Balaam's donkey. And I'm here to tell you on the authority of the word of God that he uses the low things, the things that are not, to extend the same favor that he extended to Mary to us. And for those of us that bow in obedience to the gospel and believe, we get the same favor in principle. Now you're probably saying, what are you talking about? Well, I want you to notice the words that the angel used about Mary. He said that Mary was, what were the words? Highly favored. That phrase, highly favored, in the original, is only used in one other place in the whole New Testament. And guess who is the recipient of that favor? It is those who have accepted Christ and accepted the gospel. Look at Ephesians chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Do you know how rich you are? And then he he lists them. He lists them for many verses. Here's a few of them. Verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. And here's that same favor, that same expression of favor, exactly the same words that Gabriel told Mary that Paul tells us is ours. To the praise of his glorious grace which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You are beloved. You are loved. Through Christ, that same favor of God can be ours if we will respond to the gospel with the same faith that our dear Mary showed. All right, so we've looked at who God favors. Let's answer our second question. Who is this child? Gabriel moves on from the greeting and now explains why this favor with God is so important for Mary. Again, put yourself in Mary's shoes. As she's trying to process this talk about favor with God, Gabriel unleashes a second surprise. It's a surprise that is, again, incomprehensible. She is to be the mother of a son. As a virgin quickly ball, followed by a third stunner, that her teenage body is to be nothing less than the means by which heaven is going to break through into the earth through which God would become a man. And then Gabriel discharges an explosion of theology. It's like a machine gun of attributes, truth about God. He outlines in rapid fire five things that we need to know about this baby. And if we don't get these five facts straight, then the whole Christmas story, as we enter this season of Advent, won't have the significance that it should. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. Wait a sec how many of you parents let somebody else decide what your kid's name was gonna be? (laughs) Not here. Normally the parents have the right to name their child, but not for this child. Mary is told to name her child Jesus. Literally means the one who saves. Well, if Jesus saves, that implies that somebody needs to be saved from something. And Matthew explains, 121 explains what that is. He says, you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. He's not only a savior, but the angel continues with the second attribute. It says, he will be great and will be called son of the most high. The angel repeats this in verse 35. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. By being told that her child is to be the son of God, Mary is being told that this son is to be both God and man. Now, those of you that have read the Bible, maybe, maybe like me, you're just trying to figure out, this like, this seems like an oxymoron. How can, how can a, a Jesus be all God? It's not like he's 50% man and 50% God. At the same time, he's all man and all God. Oh, that's hard. Uh, if he if, if, and, and then you, of course, you think about the doctrine of the trinity it 's the same thing. How can God be one and three at the same time? It leaves your mind swimming well uh, here 's an analogy that has been very, very helpful to me and I, and I know that a lot of you i 've talked to you like you know, Colin and, and uh, other people a lot of you follow a, an incredible new area of science called quantum mechanics and it, it's just mind-blowing what the uh, forefront of science is is discovering, and if you study quantum mechanics, you'll disco- you'll discover completely non-intuitive that some particles can be more than one thing at once. You know, so I uh, look into superpositioning and uh, and uh, quantum entanglement. I'm not going to go through it, but you will find in in like models, like analogies of how God is. And uh, one of the greatest physicists of the 20th century, his name was John Polkinghorne, with Stephen Hawking. Um, at age 49, he gave up his illustrious career at Cambridge University and decided to get a real job. He became a pastor. <laughs> and, and he's written books on this. I, I have marvelous, marvelous uh, scientist, theologian, and if you ever wonder about th- these things, uh, wow. There, there's, there's so many incredible glories that God has embedded right into his creation. But anyhow, I'm not going to get into that. It's a little rabbit trail. But what is more, remember, not only is Jesus the God man, Gabriel continues, God, son of God is also a king. In the last three attributes here, notice the royal words that are used. Number three, God is going to give him the throne of his father, David, telling Mary, Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. Number four, that he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. We don't have time to go into that, but that reign over the house of Jacob implies that his reign is worldwide. And the last, that of his kingdom, there will be no end. His kingdom is going to be eternal. Well, Israel had a long experience with kings, and most of it was terrible. The majority of the kings in the Old Testament were evil. When we add up all of the kings of, of the United Kingdom, of the 12 tribes, plus the uh, kings from the later division, from Israel and Judah, right from the very first one, which was Saul, to the last one, which was Zedekiah, just before the Babylonians took uh, the southern two tribes of Judah into captivity, we get a grand total of 42 kings and one queen. And of those 43, seven, only seven, were primarily good. And good was being defined not necessarily as competence but as simply a king who feared the Lord. Of those 43, five entered their reigns with mixed records like, let's say, Solomon and 31 were almost completely evil. And we don't know the final state or what happened to all of these kings, but of the ones for which we have records, just over half, 22, were either killed by their enemies or by coups or directly by God. And for the good kings, their average reign was 34 years. And for the bad kings, their average reign was only 18 years. The point is is that every reign of those kings and, and queen were temporary, and all of the kings and queens that have ruined, ruled throughout history have always been a combination of some degree of flaws and temporary. And even the empires, the many empires, I've, I've kind of counted them and I've gotten about 80 that we know about throughout history, every empire that has existed or that does exist will eventually disappear. And mathematicians have kind of calculated uh, that the average empire lasts for somewhere between 250 and 400 years. Um, Thomas Cole, a famous 19th century painter, has, uh, has kind of portrayed this in, uh, in uh, what he calls the seasons of empire. He uh, starts off with what's called the savage state. That's people living off the land. Then they start to get organized and it becomes the pastoral state. They get some basic technologies. And then the third um, part uh, in the growth of empire is what's called the consummation. This is kind of like Rome at its height here, height of their power. Then something, some disaster happens. There's the destruction and then the desolation. And, and that's just the ruins that are left. Every ruler, king, and empire and civilization is temporary. But no, man, make no mistake: in our era, we are watching power grow and power wane. In my lifetime, I have seen I've seen three empires grow and disappear, and or at least lose power and grow. And as we watch the new powers that are arising on the horizon, again, the power that they are going to have is going to be unprecedented in history because we are now uh, coming into an era of the surveillance state and the technologies that we have now for controlling people and that are about to become widespread are incredible. We, basically what we're doing is we're rebuilding the Tower of Babel through a networked world. But what the angel wants Mary to know is that this child is going to be the king and his reign will last forever. And when Jesus, at the final end of all time, mounts his conquering horse and returns, he will have on his robe and on his thigh a name written, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we will sing with Revelation 11:15, 15, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. That is the direction that history is pointing So, we've learned about who God favors. Uh, We've learned learned about, um, about who this child is. What about our third question? How can Mary, who is a virgin, conceive and have a child? It's a lot to process for a young teenager, so She's learned God's favored her, she's learned what kind of son she's going to have. And for the first time she speaks, verse 34, not tongue-tied. She says, "How will this be since I am a virgin?" Well, in a what a wonderful question, and because of her question, we are given an inside understanding of how. Jesus was born. And the angel gives a very powerful answer. Verse 35. And uh, this, uh, uh, this almost uh, uh, gives me goosebumps. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, underline that word therefore, therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing, nothing is impossible with God. Just from Mary's simple question, look at the truth that came out. How is Mary, who is a virgin, to conceive? The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. All throughout throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit, one of his attributes, one of his jobs, is to impart, is to generate life. And that in combination with the power of the Most High overshadowing you, That reminds us of, some of you remember that story in Exodus 40 where nothing less than the cloud of God's glory has filled or it overshadowed that location where the ark was placed in the tabernacle. It's the same language, that overshadowing. On the Mount of Transfiguration where uh, Peter, James, and John went up with Christ onto a mountain and, and Christ's glory somehow broke through his humanity and it says, that the cloud of the power of the Most High came and overshadowed Jesus, along with Moses and Elijah, Peter and John. And When that cloud, that overshadowing occurred, a voice came out saying, "'This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. "'Listen to him.'" Peter, of course, when he experienced this overshadowing, didn't want to leave the mountain, who would? But the amazing thing is that God, through the Holy Spirit, in a similar sense, wants to overshadow us. Remember, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit all throughout scripture is to generate life. And just like he bred the body of Jesus in Mary through this overshadowing power through the Holy Spirit, he wants to Breed, he wants to spawn the life of Christ in us. And that's why we're so favored. This is the language of Romans 8 9. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, it's the same spirit that was used to give life to Jesus in Mary's womb, the same spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life, that's the life of Jesus, into your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. Isn't that incredible? The life of Jesus at this Christmas season can be birthed in you if you will respond to the gospel. And What does this beautiful passage mean for us? Well, I think we need to respond exactly the same way that Mary did. Mary said in verse 38, behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Mary's posture was that of of submission. And what a perfect time for us to reaffirm to God that we are his servants. This Christmas season today we've learned three things, that just like Mary, God favors us. We've learned that our King is the Son of God who rules a kingdom that will last forever. And thirdly, that just as the Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High came upon Mary, God wants to come upon you. He wants to come upon me and give us nothing less than the birth of the life of Christ in our souls perfect time to remember that. Um, in, in conclusion, I just wanna share with you a poem. Um, every time I come to this season, um, I, I, I'm in absolute awe, uh, I, I cannot understand, I cannot wrap my head around the fact that the, the creator of all things, who made the uh, 100 billion galaxies explode off into space, creator of all things, somehow can become vulnerable, can become limited and become part of his creation, and even allow his creation to wound and destroy him. So here's a few thoughts in closing. The light of the world now sits in a dark, stable cavity, His flaming majesty followed by Sumerian human depravity. He whose word unleashed a furious nuclear cauldron of a trillion spiral galaxies in blazing symmetrical motion. His tongue lies quiet and serene, but poised to speak again. Words that change to flesh the calcified hearts of men. Infinity locked in a manger, eternity tethered to time. The creator is transformed and conceived to heal vile defects of mine. Great in his essence of God, but small as a servant in a barn. He is snared by his own creation to release my soul from harm. The inns are still filled with anxiety, but fear not, neurotic earth. Make room in your troubled hearts for the miraculous new birth, for he trades his sapphire thrones and celestial armies of white, and the luminous radiance of gold and the carnelian heavenly heights for a donkey's dish of straw and naked defenselessness as he prepares for epic battle dressed only in holiness. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice and we humbly accept the favor that you have sent to us through this child that was born to Mary. Father, please come over us, overshadow us. And through your Holy Spirit, give us the life that you have promised. And may this be the strength by which we live life this week in obedience as your servant. In Jesus' name, amen.